Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, and your moderator for today's live-streamed program with START Treaty Negotiator, Rose Gottemuller. That is New START Treaty Negotiator. Now, it is a great personal pleasure to introduce our distinguished speaker, my friend and longtime colleague, Rose Gottemuller. She is Distinguished Lecturer at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. She's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. She's former Deputy Secretary General of NATO and former Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security in the Obama administration. She is also the author of the brand new book, Negotiating the New Start Treaty, published by Cambria Press. One of President Biden's first act in office was to extend the New Start Treaty with Russia. Concluded in 2010, the treaty cuts the strategic nuclear arsenals of the United States and Russia in half. It was set to expire on February 5th, 2021, and it's now, thank goodness, in force for another five years. That treaty, which is holding back a new nuclear arms race between the United States and Russia, was negotiated by Rose Gottemuller. What was it like to negotiate a major nuclear arms control treaty with the Russians, to get Presidents Obama and Medvedev to agree to it, and then negotiate its ratification through the U.S. Senate at one of the most deeply partisan times in American history? Importantly, how did Republicans and Democrats come together to ratify a treaty to safeguard the future of all Americans? And now, what comes next in arms control and in dealing with Russia? Today, I'm pleased that we'll have a conversation with Rose Gottemuller on the eve of the June 16th first summit between Presidents Biden and Putin. Rose and I have worked together on a number of occasions, including on dismantling weapons of mass destruction in the former Soviet countries during the Clinton administration. And Rose, I'm so pleased and honored to welcome you back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you, Gloria. It's great to be here, if only virtually. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity. Thank you to you and uh, your whole team and also to the viewers today. Thank you. So let's dive in. First of all, tell us what New START is. And why is it important, including what it means to American citizens? New START is one of a series of nuclear arms limitation and reduction treaties. The series began in the 1970s uh, with President Nixon, believe it or not. And so we've had about 50 years of experience in this area now, working first with the Soviet Union and now with the Russian Federation. This latest treaty reduces the number of uh, missiles and uh, bombers, so-called delivery vehicles, to 700, and the number of warheads that are operationally deployed to 1,550. Just for reference for everyone, when START, uh, the preceding Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, entered into force in 1994, there were 12,000 operationally deployed strategic warheads on each side. So these negotiations and these treaties have been the main a method by which the United States and the Russian Federation, prior to that the USSR, uh, really uh, began to reduce and eliminate the nuclear overhang from the Cold War, what I like to call the ash and trash of the Cold War. We really did arms race seriously during that period, so that we ended up building a total of 
over 32,000 warheads in the United States, and in the USSR, over 40,000 nuclear warheads. So we had a lot of reducing to do, and these treaties have really helped us to do, uh, to do that. They've been a, a very important tool. And we all know the dangers and tensions of the Cold War with many near misses, with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, it is a long pathway to try to get this nuclear danger under control. President Obama began his time in office with an important speech in Prague in which he talked about the objective of a future without nuclear weapons. Can you tell us a little bit, if you can remember back to that time, what was his impulse? Um, why did he focus on this? How, was, how did New START come to be a vehicle towards his vision? Yes, that April 2009 speech was very important, but President Obama had already uh, laid down the foundations for it during his campaign. He went off to visit uh, the Russian Federation with then-Senator Richard Lugar, Dick Lugar, on a number of occasions and saw it firsthand uh, the way that the nuclear buildup had affected the USSR and how much work the Russian Federation then had to do to reduce and eliminate. And he saw the same on the U.S. side. Interestingly enough, uh, he also seemed very personally committed to what is an existing commitment of the United States of America, as well as Russia, and that is under the Non-Proliferation Treaty to work steadily toward nuclear disarmament. It's always been there uh, since the NPT came into force in 1972. It's been there as a goal of policy, but always one just outside of reach. So the important thing about President Obama and his Prague speech is he made it an actual real-time goal of U.S. Uh, national policy to pursue, as he put it in Prague, the peace and security of a world without nuclear weapons. He was very realistic about it. He said, this is a goal that will be pursued, but not achieved in my lifetime. So he wasn't rushing, uh, I think, in any kind of irrational or illogical way, but it was an important step to make it a, a real-time goal of U.S. policy because it did tend to get the whole of government in the United States thinking hard about how to achieve that objective. And so New START became the vehicle for pursuing this. And as I recall, and as you discuss in your book, a very short time window was set to complete this treaty. Can you, again, tell us about the objectives of New START and um, how it looked, you know, at that time, the short time horizon? Yes, it's a little bit of deja vu all over again, considering, as you mentioned in your introduction, we just went through this with, with New START. New START, uh, according to its terms, could be extended beyond a five, uh, sorry, a 10-year life for another five years. So it was to go out of force in February of 2021, but it could be extended until February 2026. We negotiated that into the treaty. It was important because it meant it didn't have to go back to the Senate for their advice and consent but uh, could be done just by the action of uh, the presidents, President uh, Biden in this case, and President Putin. So um, back in 2008, at that time, the Bush administration, and oh yes, at that time it was still President Putin, faced the same uh, conundrum with START going out of force. The first strategic arms reduction treaty was going out of force in December of uh, 2009. And so Bush and Putin, their, their teams worked together on trying to extend it. They had some serious differences about how to do it. So it landed in President Obama's lap when he came in uh, to office, but he remained resolved to, uh, to get a new treaty in place in time for the, the uh, START treaty to go out of force. 
And furthermore, he said we should be working on a couple more treaties in my time in office. He was hoping to be reelected and so have eight years to do a couple additional arms reduction treaties as well. That didn't work out so well, but that's another story. By the time President Obama came into office, President Med Dmitry Medvedev had stepped in to fill Vladimir Putin's shoes. Uh, we at the time thought, well, this could be uh, a sign of, of change in, in Russian politics, that in fact uh, Medvedev was a harbinger of, of change and that, uh, that Putin would not be returning to office. We know that that is not true now. Of course, he stepped back into the presidency in 2012 and President Medvedev uh, stepped into the prime ministership. But when New START was being negotiated, Putin was the prime minister and Medvedev was the counterpart for President Obama. So that's how the two of them came to launch the negotiations. And they did so with this sense of urgency that it needed to be completed between April 2009 and December of 2009, which was really unprecedented speed for a negotiation of this kind. When START was negotiated back in the 1980s and 1990s, it took six years on and off to negotiate that treaty. So it really was quite a task that they handed us, the delegations, both the Russians and the American delegations. I guess a deadline that like that clarifies the mind greatly. Uh, tell us Tell us a little bit about your background. What was your position at the time? You were the lead negotiator for the U.S. for the New START Treaty. How did you come to be in that role and that position? Well, I'm one of that interesting phenomenon in the U.S. government, and uh, you too, uh, Gloria, have been one of these interesting phenomena, and that is we call them the revolving door people, those who work in the think tank world or uh, in business sometimes uh, on Wall Street in the banking field and step into government service when a new president comes into office and become political appointees. So that has been my background. Actually, I began life uh, working at the Rand Corporation and worked there for, for uh, over a decade, really uh, getting a lot of experience working on uh, nuclear policy uh, and, uh, and nuclear doctrine, as well as the technical side of things. What, what do these nuclear delivery vehicles look like? What do these warheads look like from a technical point of view? So I had a great... I say journeyman's existence at, at the Rand Corporation. But then I had the opportunity of entering into the Clinton administration along with you, which was really a great period for our work to uh, make sure that the remnants of the Soviet nuclear arsenal did not fall into the wrong hands, into the hands of terrorists or into the hands of, of state actors who might use them in malign ways. So we, we really did some good work with uh, the Yeltsin administration at that time. And that was uh, really formative for me to understand both how government worked on our side, but also in Moscow as well. Uh, after leaving uh, the Clinton administration, I went to work for the Carnegie Endowment and spent uh, nearly, uh, well, eight years there altogether. But uh, the last three of those years was as the director of Carnegie Endowment's Moscow Center. So that really gave me a great uh, viewpoint to see what was going on with the Russian expert community, but also to get to know many of the people inside the Russian government, including the person who turned out to be my counterpart on the negotiations, Anatoly Antonov, now the Russian ambassador to the United States. So it was really a great opportunity. It's quite serendipitous when I look back on it that I had this, this chance not only to work in the Clinton administration with people like you on this very difficult task of of nuclear security in uh, Russia and the other newly independent states, but then had the opportunity to 
to uh, work in Moscow and get to know many of the people that I would be working with once the New START negotiations began. The last thing I wanted to mention is that I did have a chance to work on the START negotiations back in 1990 and 1991. That was because I was selected to be an International Affairs Fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations. These are absolutely great fellowships. They give you know, think tankers like me an opportunity to go inside government and get some real-time experience. And in this case, uh, the State Department sent me off to Geneva to be a very junior State Department representative for the START negotiations in 1990 and 1991. So I really feel like in terms of building foundation, that too was so important. I never would have known how to organize a delegation if I hadn't had that opportunity to serve on, on the START team in uh, 1990 and 1991. Just in, in terms of the lineup in the U.S., there was the president, there was an under, a secretary of state, there was an undersecretary, and you were sort of part of a team going up, and the vice president, all of whom were involved in these negotiations in different ways at different levels. Yes, and that is so important, having the highest level of government paying attention to this negotiation or to any negotiation is so important because it means the whole government is uh, is gripped by it, and they have to start uh, working the issues. They well, they can slow roll. Any government agency can be clever about slow rolling, but uh, but nevertheless, the fact that the government uh, is getting its instructions directly from the president, and that the president is paying attention uh, on a day in day out basis. President Obama had many many calls with President Medvedev over the telephone. They met three or four times. Uh, in order to to hammer out even some very technical details of, of the treaty. And they were both committed to it personally. And, and the governments see that. And so it means everybody sits up and takes a t uh, pays attention. In our case, that manifested itself uh, with the National Security Advisor, General Jim Jones at the time, uh, being willing to travel to Moscow to work with his counterpart. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, the same. He was willing. He came to Geneva once. He came to Moscow once. And having that kind of firepower was so important uh, to getting the Russians also to, to treat this negotiation with the speed and intensity that was necessary to get it done. We didn't quite make that December 2009 deadline, but we did get it finished in April of 2009, which is one year from start to finish. So that is unprecedented speed. Let me just mention one other thing about the interagency so people recognize what a whole of government uh, activity it is. We had, of course, uh, the Department of Defense, not only the uniform people under the chairman, but also the Office of the Secretary of Defense. We had the Department of Energy. Why is that? Well, the Department of Energy, its National Nuclear Security Administration, is responsible for the warheads in our government. So the Energy Department was a very important player. The State Department, of course, and the intelligence community. So we had a big, uh, a big team. Uh, we had about 70 people working on the delegation uh, through the course of, of the negotiations, and it was important that each of those uh, each of those organizations be represented not only at a high level. I had some great senior people on my team, but also they sent experts out who really knew either about the weapon systems because they'd been operators uh, of bombers or, you know, they'd been down in submarine tubes or else uh, people who had been inspectors on previous uh, on previous treaties. So that was really important experience. So 
tell us a little bit about your counterpart, Anatoly Antonov. And I was especially struck by the story of the article that came out uh, early in the negotiations about uh, how he might have trouble dealing with this strong woman from the United States and how you handled that. Well, we had gotten to know each other, as I mentioned, in, in Moscow. He came from time to time to speak at the Carnegie Moscow Center on matters of arms control. He was responsible in the, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs at that time for the department dealing with arms control and nonproliferation. So he would come and speak, or sometimes we'd go out to lunch. He even invited me to join his advisory uh, committee, outside expert advisory committee. And I found out afterwards he came in for some criticism because he asked an American to join. Only Russians are welcome, but he was, you know, he was, I think, astute enough to recognize that maybe I could bring some value to to their discussions. So we had a, a kind of mutual respect, I would say, when I when I left Moscow, and that was very very helpful uh, to getting going quickly. When when a negotiation starts off, and if the chief negotiators don't know each other, they engage in a kind of I call it a kabuki dance for some period of time, as they are figuring out you know, what style the other has, what kinds of tricks they like to play. Negotiators always like to play tricks. So it was good that Anatoly and I had this kind of acquaintanceship to begin with. But then uh, the Moscow, I would say, uh, normal operating uh, methods took over in that uh, Russians are famous misogynists. And somebody in the Russian system didn't like the fact that there was a girl leading the U.S. delegation and decided to take a swipe at Anatoly. The article was published in one of the Russian military uh, newspapers, and it said, you know, well, this woman is so tough, nobody can get the better of her. And indeed, our negotiator is not going to be able to get the better of her. This was not a swipe at me. It was a swipe at my counterpart to say, you know, he's, he's going to be beaten by a girl is what it came right down to. So I knew, I was concerned actually that it spelled uh, him being replaced as chief negotiator, but in actual fact, he took it, he took, <laughs> took it out on me in different ways, playing some of these, uh, these tough games that I mentioned in the book, one of which was uh, there was an important meeting in the Kremlin during the first trip of, of President uh, Obama to uh, Moscow in July of 2009. And uh, he engineered it so that I didn't get into the meeting, but he did. Uh, for chief negotiators, that's a real blow to your authority. So I wasn't very happy about that. Now in future, I talked to the White House. It was never a problem again. But there were some unpleasant games of that kind for a while. And frankly, it was fine with me. I thought it was good, you know, just to clear the air. Let's let's get through this rough period and then we can get on with the negotiations. And it was good that they didn't change negotiators because it would have taken us months to get to get going then, I think, to get acquainted and to get really moving on the negotiations. And we did not have months months to spare. And um, I do, I do, I did see that you did at one point pound the table and uh, sort of establish that, uh, you know, you were tough in the right way. Well, that came more from the men on my delegation. It didn't come so much from the Russians. It was funny because we had a daily staff meeting and, and uh, in the early months of the negotiations, my guys began to get frustrated because I wasn't showing enough temper at the negotiating table. You know, I was just being very reasonable and proceeding in a very serious and even tempered way. Those uh, women out there will recognize that sometimes uh, you need to be serious and tempered and not lose your temper because then people say that you're screechy. I didn't want to be known as screechy. I wanted to be known as serious and focused. And I knew my stuff. That was important, too, to convey that I knew the substance very well. 
So, but, but my guys were having none of it. They said, you need to get angry. You need to show the Russians that, that you have some temper and you can get angry. So one day I, I just decided to pursue a little street theater and I brought my hand down uh, hard on the table. The Russians had insisted they wanted to put missile defense constraints into the treaty. And that's not what our presidents had agreed in London in April of 2009. So I brought my hand hard down on the table and said, this treaty is about strategic offensive forces limiting them, not about missile defenses. And uh, I guess I turned red into the bargain because uh, my, my men were jubilant afterwards. They said, oh, you were great. You turned red. You got really angry. I think the Russians were a little surprised because it was not my style, but they took the message. They, they can take histrionics. There's certainly plenty of histrionics on their side from time to time. So in any event, that was an interesting experience, but I never needed to throw a temper tantrum again at the behest of my own team, I did throw one additional temper tantrum during the negotiations because the Russians took some serious steps back from some of the compromises we were working on in November of 2009. But I never had to throw my temper uh, again on account of my own team. It was interesting, and this would not have been true some years ago, that going up the chain in the U.S. government, your immediate boss was Representative or Undersecretary Tauscher, a woman. Uh, her boss was Secretary Clinton, a woman. So kind of the three key players here in terms of getting, you know, the, the backstopping and the negotiating done were all women. And I should mention, by the way, Representative Tauscher is a former member, was a member of the Commonwealth Club's board and somebody very dear to us. And we miss her. I miss her too, Gloria. She was such a help in the negotiations. Uh, it is true in, I think, any, at least as I know, strategic arms limitation or strategic arms reduction treaty that at the last minute, oftentimes high-level people from the capitals have to step in to, to break through some of the final log jams. And Ellen uh, came uh, to, uh, to Geneva in March uh, of 2010 and helped us to break through some of the final log jams in the negotiations she had been uh, many years on Capitol Hill. She knew how to break through in tough negotiations, and she used those skills to the hilt in the New START Treaty negotiations. So I really appreciated her presence, and, and I miss her too. She was, she was really a fantastic person and, and a real force of nature. An incredible sense of humor too. Um, so there are a lot of questions uh, sort of looking towards the future, but just before we get to those, can you summarize for us how many months did it take? What were the major issues in the treaty? How did it finally all come together? And you know, what is the uh, what was the how did it get finally uh, wrapped up and and sealed and delivered uh, through the ratification process? Yes, I was going to say. What do you mean? Uh, just the negotiations with the Russians, or also the negotiations with the Senate? The, nego <laughs> the negotiations with the Russians took from April of two thousand nine to April of two thousand ten we immediately picked up to begin our interactions with the Senate. So I would say from April of 2010, then until December of 2010, on December 22nd of, uh, of 2010, we had the ratification vote on the treaty. Just a comment for, for the viewers today, uh, it often gets mistaken, but it's actually the president who ratifies the treaty. The Senate gives their advice and consent to ratification. So when I talk about the ratification vote, they're giving their advice and consent for the president to ratify the treaty and turn it essentially into a legal document under U.S. law. 
so that's an important matter but we we uh yeah we were going nonstop uh from april of 2009 until december of 2010 and um what were the big issues in the treaty that had to be overcome between the U.S. and Russia? The biggest issue I've already mentioned, uh, I think, and that is that the Russians kept insisting, although President Medvedev and President Obama agreed early on in London in 2009 that this would be a negotiation about reducing strategic offensive forces, but the Russians insisted that they wanted to place some limits on U.S. missile defenses. And this was not part of our instructions. I was actually lucky to be able to say time and time again that our presidents had instructed us to work on strategic offensive reductions, that is, missiles, bombers, submarines, etc., not on reducing and limiting missile defense interceptors. So this was an important, a very important step that was taken early on and was a good help in the negotiations. But then the Russians also began to, uh, you know, want to get some of their own things into the treaty. For example, we decided that we would like to put some uh, some telemetry uh, measures into the treaty. Now, telemetry is the data that comes from uh, from flight testing of missiles, and you read telemetry data to tell how many warheads are are on top of a missile, how many. Uh, you know, what kind of uh, performance parameters it has, how, what's its range, et cetera, et cetera. So it had been very important during the START treaty because we had actually used telemetry exchanges to determine our counting rule in START, how many warheads were on the top of each missile. But in new START, we went to a procedure to directly uh, uh, confirm the number of warheads. We didn't use a counting rule in, in new START. And so we didn't really need telemetry in the same way, but it became very, very important in the U.S. Uh, political system that it be in there because people were looking back to start and saying, oh, that was in start. We need something like that in new start, despite the fact that it functionally wasn't, wasn't needed. So this is all very complicated for, for your viewers, but the point I want to make is that the Russians uh, began to link missile defense and what they wanted, which was something on missile defense in the treaty with telemetry and what we wanted, which was something on telemetry in the treaty. And that would, that was the kind of top line, I would say, set of difficult issues. But there were a number of more bread and butter technical issues uh, surrounding the verification regime, for example. How were we going to work out exactly how many inspections we would have? What would the inspections uh, be designed uh, to do? And uh, these were, were technical issues that had to be worked through. That's part of the reason the, the negotiations did take a year. I think there was some expectation among some in Washington, and you see that tension in my book, that, that somehow we could you know, go to Geneva for a couple of weeks and, and uh, presto, the treaty would be finished. But, but there were so many technical details to be worked through that it took quite, quite a bit of time. Uh, but I still think a year is pretty good from start to finish for the, the negotiations of the treaty that itself. And then it's often said that an arms control negotiation is two negotiations, one in for the foreign arena and one at home. And so what popped up in the ratification debate? How did 67 senators finally vote for ratification uh, in this extremely contentious environment? Yes, well, there were several factors that were important on the political front at the time uh, the Democrats controlled the Senate, and that was uh, very helpful in that the leadership uh, said that senators should be allowed to vote their conscience on the treaty and uh, the Republican Party went along with that. So senators 
were allowed to take a good hard look at the treaty, essentially, and decide whether or not, according to their own view, it was in the national security interest of the United States. To my mind, because ratification, advice and consent to ratification of treaties is a constitutional duty of the senators, uh, this should be the, the norm, that they should have the uh, opportunity to take a good hard look at a treaty and decide for themselves whether or not it is in the national security interest of the United States. In this case, they took their responsibility incredibly uh, seriously. <laughs> we answered over a thousand questions for the record, and we had over 20 hearings and briefings in the negotiate, uh, sorry, in, in the negotiation with the Senate. I always say there were two negotiations, one with the Russians and the second one with the Senate. And uh, their attention uh, to the, the treaty was very serious and I think very praiseworthy because they did, if, you know, if they didn't understand something, they called on us again and again and again to brief them and not only in big formal, you know, settings, but uh, in their offices, uh, sometimes in the corridor, sometimes with the lady senators in the ladies' room, if I happen to run into them there. Yes, guys, sometimes we do run into our counterparts in the ladies' room and avail ourselves of that opportunity. So uh, it was, I think, a really uh, hard-driving effort, but I was impressed that the senators took their responsibilities so seriously. And if I may just comment, I think it's important for the future. It's not all about arms control treaties, and, and you may or may not agree with nuclear arms reduction as a, a tool of U.S. policy, but we need treaties uh, in so many ways on the trade and economic front, uh, on you know, the political front in many ways when you're talking about our relations with foreign countries, sometimes things so simple as boundary setting. Yes, sometimes we have negotiations with Canada though on boundary setting. All of these issues uh, really uh, deserve to get good hard scrutiny in the Senate and you know, not just say we're never gonna ratify another treaty, forget about it. We're never gonna give our advice and consent. So I do hope that there can be consideration of this matter uh, as a constitutional issue overall and something that, that should generally be, uh, be front and center in the way the, the senators think about, about what their responsibilities are. Well, as, as you point out, party discipline today would probably not easily allow uh, this individual uh, responsibility and discretion by senators about how they were going to vote. It's much stricter today. It is, it is true. To my mind, it's a, a not a good development, but I do hope that there can be some consideration of this measure, this uh, matter, because I really just feel like uh, that you know, senators are elected because, because they do know a lot and they do, have, uh, they do have brains and they take matters very, very seriously. And to my mind, it's, it's the right way to go. Well, let's turn to the future a little bit. Um, you know, I remember at the time, one of the critiques from the arms control and disarmament community was that this treaty would not prevent modernization of nuclear weapons. Uh, it would not prevent the development of new technologies, and therefore it was not uh, proactive enough. Uh, and so we we do see today the Russians moving ahead uh, in a number of areas of new military technology, some nuclear, some non-nuclear. And for instance, one uh, of our um, uh, audience members uh, wants to know uh, what do you... Uh, what do you think about uh, hypersonic weapons? Can you explain what hypersonic missiles are and how they're influencing the current nuclear arms situation? The Russians have made 
significant progress in a number of military areas, despite the treaties that are in force. Uh, so can you comment and what are the threats facing the U.S. from Russia in the nuclear and other military fields, and how should we be approaching those? Well, there are limits to what a treaty can do uh, in in any uh, arena, and I think the fact that we did place very firm limits on the number of missiles of any kind uh, that the Russians can uh, deploy, kinds that have been uh, have been in existence in the past is important. They are modernizing. They have modernized with a number of very effective uh, mobile missile systems. Uh, likewise, their own hypersonic glide system called the Avant-Garde is launched on an existing type of missiles called the SS-19. Therefore, that new hypersonic glide strategic range uh, missile will be constrained under the new START treaty. It's the same with the Sarmat, the heavy missile that the Russians have begun, uh, well, they've been testing it. It's not yet into full deployment. So, but it's a existing, basically an existing type under the treaty. So it, it will continue to be constrained by that limit of 700. And that's important. And that's important now as the United States begins to modernize our own nuclear arsenal. You know, President Obama himself said, as I mentioned at Prague, that this would not happen in his lifetime, that we would get to zero nuclear weapons. And so he determined that we should proceed with what I call a judicious modernization of our nuclear arsenal. Judicious means it is kept under the limitations of a strategic arms reduction treaty. I hope it will be kept under con you know, constraint by uh, the follow-on to the New START treaty. And it goes for the Russians as well. They have modernized. They've completed their modernization, but they are kept under constraint by the New START treaty. These uh, treaties are a break on arms racing. And I think that is extraordinarily important to bear in mind. Now, new technologies have come down uh, the road in the ensuing years. And particularly, we've been concerned about the so-called exotic kinds that the Russians have developed, some nuclear-propelled systems, a cruise missile system, uh, in addition to which uh, they, have, uh, they have tested an air-launched ballistic missile, uh, and uh, there is an additional uh, nuclear-propelled missile out there that the Russians have, have been developing, not yet into deployment. So I think everyone agrees on the U.S. side that these are the systems that need to be brought into the negotiations to get some constraints on them in the next treaty, but uh, indeed we did not know about their existence uh, under uh, in, at the time of our negotiations because they were not yet in existence. But that's the point. You can use uh, the kind of evolution of the treaties themselves and bringing about further treaties through further negotiation to constrain new technologies that, that come in uh, to, to existence. It's not always possible to foresee technological development and the history of trying to constrain future uh, technological development with strategic arms limitation is not good. So both of our uh, countries have, have been rather wary of that, I would say, historically. This is not something I, the negotiator, decide, but frankly, our Pentagon, our Department of Defense, don't want to see their technological options constrained uh, through a treaty, uh, a th a treaty instrument. So, but it is important to keep the hardware under control, and we have succeeded in doing that not only with the delivery systems, the missiles and bombers, but also with uh, the constraints on uh, deployments of, of warheads. And so I think these are important points to bear in mind. 
Now, hypersonic glide vehicles, it's not only the Russians who are developing them. We have a hypersonic glide vehicle system as well. And it's interesting to note that during our New START treaty negotiations, the Pentagon was very keen that that HGV system not fall under the constraints of New START. They asked, because it's conventional, uh, it's not a nuclear armed system. So they asked me to be very clear in the negotiations that we would not bring that new HGV system under the New START treaty. But beyond Russia and the United States, the Chinese are developing such systems, the French, the Indians are interested. It's a system that is launched on a convention. And you all, well, all will have to forgive me. I'm not you know, a technical expert 100%, but it's a system that's launched on a conventional missile like the SS-19 I mentioned, ICBM, of the Russians. It uh, goes to a certain height and is launched off uh, the the SS-19 in this case, and then flies uh, into back into the atmosphere. So it's boosted in its trajectory and then comes back down into the atmosphere and glides over a very long distance uh, to, its, uh, to its target. So it's seen as being uh, really very difficult to defend against, and that is seen as being the, um, the advantage of them, because in the case of a traditional ballistic system, if it's launching on a ballistic trajectory, then our radars can see that and they can, uh, they can uh, in theory, defend against it. But if you're talking about boost glide, it's maneuvering in the atmosphere and moving in different ways through the atmosphere. So it's much harder to defend against. You know, this is an aside uh, with this entire uh, Russian focus on developing high-tech weapons. Um, I, uh, their economy is in a bit different uh, state now than it was some years ago with the high price of gas and oil uh, fueling uh, the ability of the Russians to invest in major military technologies and so on. So I always think if we want the Russians to not do as much of this, then we should move to non-fossil fuel, uh, uh, you know, fewer fossil fuel purchases. But in any case... That's an ex it's, no, no, it's an excellent point. And frankly, I think with, uh, you know, the level of uh, middle class, uh, middle class incomes going down in Russia and, and the problems in so many areas, we've seen it in the uh, difficulty they've had with handling the pandemic, their healthcare systems in, in uh, really uh, bad shape. Why the investment isn't going into those kinds of programs and instead is going into the military programs? Well, that's a question for the Russian people to ask, of course, but it does seem it does seem unfortunate, an unfortunate disbalance looking in from the outside. So Putin and Biden are about to have a summit. Will arms control be on the agenda? Uh, what, in what ways? What else will be on the agenda? And from our audience, how will Biden negotiating with Putin be both similar and different than anything you experienced? Well, first of all, the presidents have been pretty clear and it's been reported in the media. They had a telephone call on the 11th of April, and it was reported out of that telephone call that they would uh, place an emphasis in uh, the uh, summit meeting on uh, what we called not only uh, nuclear arms control, pursuing a, a follow-on to the new START treaty, but also strategic stability topics, which embrace a larger number of topics, including nowadays new technologies as well. I think there will be attention to hypersonic glide vehicles. Maybe the presidents themselves will not talk about these highly technical subjects, but they would uh, launch strategic stability talks where the United States and Russia would have an opportunity to pursue discussions of, of new technologies, HGVs, cyber technologies, space-based assets, 
uh, et cetera. So I do think that that will be a part of what they agree to. But interestingly, they also have spoken about the necessity of pursuing topics where we have a mutual interest and can, if we work together, uh, create a mutual benefit uh, for both our countries, but also on a global stage. Uh, climate change is one good example of that. And Russia is taking over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council now. That is very much linked uh, to the climate change issues. United States also a member of the Arctic Council. So I can see that'll potentially be one area they decide to pursue. Afghanistan and what is happening with the withdrawal of NATO from Afghanistan and, and what is going to happen to the peace process. Russia and the United States, together with China and other global, I'm sorry, regional powers such as India and Pakistan, are going to have to work together to make the peace process in Afghanistan uh, viable. And so that's, a, that's another area they've articulated. President Biden was very clear he wants to talk about Ukraine, and I welcome that to have the United States involved and engaged in, in trying to, uh, to work the Ukraine issues with Russia and find some solutions uh, for that, uh, that terrible impasse uh, there. So there are several subjects that are out there that the two men agreed in their phone call they would pursue uh, going, going forward. And we'll see what comes out actually during the summit meeting. There's no question our relationship with Russia is uh, extraordinarily difficult now. You have only to see the repeated uh, cyber attacks, the cyber meddling that's going on, uh, where the Biden administration has already imposed sanctions uh, on the Russians in the area of human rights. There are continuing very stark differences, and the treatment of Alexei Navalny has raised quite a few, quite a few uh, problems and issues, again, leading to some uh, action on the U.S. side. Uh, so we shall see. I know that, well, at least I've read in the media, I'll put it that way, that, that uh, there was some hesitation on the Kremlin side to agreeing to a summit meeting for some period of time because they were, were concerned it would just be a, an opportunity to, to criticize Putin and, and not make any progress. There should be, of course, uh, there should be, of course, some some tough words between the two men. There's there's no question about that. There should normally, when there are differences in policy, be some some uh, strong, I would say, and direct discussions of it. But I do hope that they can also make progress on some of these key issues. Another audience question is: What remnants of Trump Russia policy still make negotiations challenging for the Biden administration? Uh, that's a yeah. That's a really interesting question. Um, I you know I can't really think of any because the Russians are accustomed to our system. Uh, I can only answer this by reference to my own experience. I mentioned that in 2008, uh, at that time, the Bush administration and the Putin administration were working uh, on trying to find some solutions. Actually, President Medvedev did come in by the end of the Bush administration, so they were trying to find some way to work on extending New START and, and I'm sorry, extending the START treaty at that time. And there were some proposals on the table, but when, uh, when the Obama administration came in, we had new instructions. And for a while, the Russians tried to keep bringing up the Bush administration proposal. And I kept saying, no, we have new instructions now from President Obama and President Medvedev. So we're not reverting to that earlier proposal. And they finally acquiesced, and essentially we stopped hearing about the Bush uh, proposal from the end of 2008. But it was interesting to me that uh, they have it in their mind that our governments do change, and they may they may struggle against it a little bit. But generally speaking, that they are ready to look for signals. 
from the new team and signals from the new president, of course, as to how he plans to proceed. And, you know, another thing is there's a great deal of mutual respect between uh, the two, I would say, interagencies. Uh, we don't always have military people at the table or Department of Energy people at the table, Russian Atomic Energy Agency at the pe uh, people at the table. But certainly between the diplomats, uh, they've been working together for a long, long time and have a good deal of, I would say, mutual respect, uh, may not like each other, but, but you know, regard each other as, as very capable diplomats. And, and that's helpful, too, in making these kinds of transitions. What do you think will come out of this summit? Well, frankly, I'm hoping that there will be some pretty succinct, in this area that I work on, in the nuclear policy, nuclear arms control, uh, and strategic stability arena, I hope there will be some pretty succinct instructions uh, to the negotiators, because as I said, that's what, if the highest level, if the presidents can agree on some top line instructions, that is really what helps the interagency to coalesce in Washington. Uh, you know, your previous questioner was asking about, you know, uh, some remnants of the Trump administration policy. Well, certainly down in the government, there are people who may be holding on to some of those substantive matters. And But having clear instructions saying you shall work on A, B, and C, and you need to, need to get it done by a date certain, that's another important thing to set a deadline. It really, I think, focuses the mind uh, of the bureaucrats in both governments and makes them realize, okay, there are new marching orders. We're moving in this direction and uh, begin, begins to get people to pull together in a way that's very, very important to make, to make rapid progress. So I hope that there will be some, uh, some succinct instructions and maybe only about format and procedures, you know, that there will be uh, some negotiations to replace New START. There will be some talks on strategic stability. There will be efforts to engage China. Uh, there may be efforts also to engage the P5. I know that President Putin is still quite keen on having a summit meeting between uh, among the leaders of the P5 states that include not only uh, the Russian Federation, U.S. and China, but also the U.K. and France. So, again, we shall see, but I would really argue for keeping it simple, keeping it direct and straightforward, uh, and really um, really engendering that kind of new energy uh, from the bureaucrats on both sides. And let me just briefly interject. You mentioned strategic stability and that possibly being a topic at the summit. Um, that's the concept that there's a balance of nuclear forces, primarily nuclear forces, between the U.S. and Russia, say, that would prevent either side from thinking it could take an advantage to attack the other without risking a devastating attack in uh, return. That's the so-called balance of terror or mutually assured destruction. So that, you know, that's a question at this time. Is, are, is strategic stability uh, in question? Uh, are there things that can be done to shore it up? Uh, and this relates to a question from one of the audience members. If you were still at NATO, which world nuclear threat would you see as the most dangerous right now? Russia, China, North Korea, or something else? Let me just suggest India and Pakistan. Well, that's a very good question. And it's very interesting. People often ask me about how we developed our, uh, our discourse with China during the time that I was Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Interestingly, it was the DPRK, both nuclear tests and missile tests in the 2017 timeframe that woke NATO up to Asia 
in a way that NATO had not been awake before. The NATO countries came to realize that the range between uh, Pyongyang and uh, Brussels is shorter than the range between Pyongyang and Los Angeles. And they realized with these new ICBM capabilities coming online, as well as nuclear capabilities coming online, that, uh, that uh, there could be a direct threat from the DPRK as well. So it is very interesting that it's not only uh, regarding Russia that NATO thinks about uh, nuclear threats particularly, but also is concerned about these uh, other uh, potential uh, nuclear threats. I would say another area we haven't really discussed except in passing today is the threat of nuclear terrorism or radiological terrorism, where there has been a good deal of thinking historically and uh, indeed, these cooperative threat reduction programs that Gloria and I worked on back in the Clinton administration were very focused on preventing those kinds of nuclear terrorist threats or radiological weapons. Radiological weapons do not detonate and produce uh, nuclear, you know, a nuclear effect in the same way as a, as a nuclear weapon, but they produce uh, essentially radi radioactive it's taking some radioactive waste and packing it in with a conventional explosive and then detonating it to prevent uh, to present uh, a problem which i think is is really a mass terror problem because there would be wide ranging contamination people would be very worried and concerned mass movements of people uh, so it's a, it's a different threat from the threat of a nuclear weapon going off, but nevertheless very serious. And NATO has done a lot of work on this historically and been concerned about it as a matter of resilience for the alliance. So I do expect that there will be new, perhaps some new uh, uh, attention to this. We'll see what comes out of the NATO summit. It's very, very interesting that in those three days in the middle of June, there will be a summit of the G7 uh, with, uh, you know, Russia not present, that will be in Cornwall in the UK. There will be a, a summit meeting with NATO. President Biden will be meeting with NATO at that time. There will be a summit meeting with the EU, the European Union, President Biden meeting with the EU. I welcome that very much because there was a weakening of that transatlantic relationship during the Trump administration. And President Biden, in taking this first trip uh, is is making it very clear that he's uh, he's all about re-strengthening that transatlantic bond, and I, I think that's very very important. But it is an interesting juxtaposition that immediately after those three summits, President Putin and President Biden will be meeting in in Geneva. So uh, well, that will set I would say set the environment in a certain way. One of our um, uh, audience questioners wants to know what your advice would be for those who want to become diplomats and or negotiators. What do they need to know? And I'll just kind of add on to this question a little bit. Uh, what is your advice for women who want to become diplomats and or negotiators? And I was noting in reading your book, some things that I didn't know, even though we've known each other a very long time. I do know that you raised a family uh, while you have been serving in all these various positions and conducting negotiations. I didn't know that you had had uh, two nieces uh, come with you, uh, with your family, to take care of your two young sons at one point. I think it was in Geneva while you were posted there. Uh, what challenges have you found as a woman in particular in working in this field, and including um, keeping your family life uh, moving uh, while you've been doing all this? Well, I think for uh, every every person, there are different choices that need to be made. That's a, that's a truism, nothing, nothing special there. But 
But I would say a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I think people get a little bit overwhelmed with the negotiating idea. Nuclear negotiations, oh, wow, that's so complicated and difficult. And I like to stress that, in fact, nuclear negotiations are no different from any negotiation in, in many ways. You are dealing with very serious weapons of mass destruction, but it is about finding uh, some sweet spots, some mutual uh, mutual benefits where you can get to yes. And and all of us do that every day. If if you are a mother with young children, you're negotiating with your toddler over how many cookies they get at snack time. If you've got teenagers, you're negotiating about when they're going to get the car back at night. So I think every human being has to negotiate uh, their way through life. And, and, and we have those skills. The, the trouble uh, is I think people don't often recognize that in our everyday lives, we, we acquire these negotiating skills and, and then we can hone them. Uh, as we work in government. But again, every day in the workplace, uh, you, are also, you are also negotiating with your coworkers, sometimes with, uh, with uh, the enemy. If somebody comes in from another company and you've got a tough contract to work through or something uh, of that kind. So I just like to remind people to think about your own negotiating experience and, and then think about how easy or difficult it would be to apply it in, in the nuclear realm. It does, of course, uh, it does, of course, follow that you need to have substantive uh, knowledge, and it was very important as a woman that I'm well known for having made uh, nuclear weapons policy, uh, doctrinal policy, all of this uh, a, an area of focus throughout my career. So I'm, I'm known as somebody who's worked for many years uh, in this realm, and I think that is important. And for women especially, you have to know your stuff, and, and I know all the women out there know that as women we can't fake it uh, in a in a workplace setting uh, so that has been important uh, for me as well and the third thing i would say is just those those presentation skills being able to speak very firmly and directly being able to to uh, well in my uh, case uh, stay on an even keel in a very modulated way to talk about things very directly but in as straightforward a way as possible i mentioned earlier Somebody asked me this question a, a couple of weeks ago. A group of women were talking about the book, and, and they said, well, yeah, they ask you to lose your temper, but then if you lose your temper, and I mentioned it earlier, you lose your temper, you're accused of being screechy. So, uh, well, I guess that means, ladies, that we have to learn to lose our temper but keep our voice very serious and not screech. So, <laughs> But I think these are, in some ways, these are, uh, these are challenges that face uh, everyone in the workplace and uh, in the case of women, it becomes more challenging when you have uh, young children at home. I had the good luck uh, to have, uh, and I do still have an excellent partner in my husband, uh, Ray Arnado, who was really willing uh, to you know, take some chances. When I mentioned I would like to go off to Geneva for the summer, but I didn't want to be there alone without the children, I couldn't bear it. Uh, so I asked if he'd mind if I asked our nieces to come along, college, two college age nieces. And he agreed. So he stayed back home by himself for six weeks. He probably had a good time. <laughs> but uh, I went off to Geneva with my two nieces and two sons who at that time were three and seven. And it was a little tough juggling all the responsibilities in Geneva. But nevertheless, uh, in the end of the day, I think it was the right way uh, to go. And, and the girls and my two sons are, are fast friends to this day. They're all in their uh, 30s and 50s at this point, but uh, they're fast friends. You know, um, it's interesting, not everyone understands how the U.S. government process works. And where I saw you at work most 
closely was in your role as NSC director in the area at the time when we were getting the former Soviet countries to dismantle their weapons of mass destruction. That takes a very uh, level-headed skill to promote collaboration among the many different agencies and different perspectives in the U.S. government to weave them together into a common purpose to get something done. Uh, the NSC directors, that is what they do for our audience. They, they, sit, they have uh, meetings and processes with the Defense Department, the Department of Energy, the Department of State, the intelligence agencies, and all the other relevant agencies, whether it is... Um, you know, in defense policy, foreign policy, or similar, there's a similar process on the domestic side. So that takes a lot of uh, tact and yet toughness, kind of iron fist in a velvet glove. And um, so I, I definitely saw you at work chairing all of those meetings where all of it, we uh, restive individual agency people uh, were present. And so that is the kind of skill it takes to make these things happen where you can bring people together either on a negotiating delegation or internally in Washington to get a job done. And I, you definitely have those skills. Well, thank you, Gloria. If I may just comment in both of these cases, and this is a point I haven't made yet uh, this afternoon. In both of these cases, there was an urgency about uh, the, the policy arena that, that was driving, uh, driving consensus inside our government. Uh, Many of you will remember the breakup of the Soviet Union and how worried we were that the nuclear weapons and fissile material in the former Soviet states, not only in Russia, but throughout the former Soviet states, would, would fall into the wrong hands, would get sold on the black market, and end up coming back to bite us again in nuclear terrorist attacks. So there was an urgency to this matter during the Clinton administration that helped to drive the interagency together. There was an urgency about replacing uh, START that drove the interagency together, and that too helps. I've talked about the role of presidential leadership, no question about it, but the fact that we had these urgent problems to address was also very important. Well, I hate to end, uh, this is our last question, on a uh, dire note, but similarly, one of our audience wants to know, what does the upcoming 20th anniversary of 9-11 raise in your mind regarding national security? Well, I'd like to link this to our uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, because of course, our involvement in Afghanistan came about as a result of 9-11. And uh, it is the persistence uh, of uh, the threat of violent extremism that continues uh, to, to dog me. It worries me very, very much. I think we've done a lot in these years. We've done a lot in Afghanistan to uh, build up uh, that society, to build up that, that country. I would hate to see it uh, go down the drain quickly. Everything from having in place a, a constitution to having participation throughout the government uh, by women and minorities and, and having girls in school. These are all matters where we have made a big, big contribution, but I'm worried about the, the uh, persistence of these, uh, of these advances uh, once the United States and its NATO allies and partners leave Afghanistan. So I think this fight is not over. Uh, the, the threat of violent extremism, it led to the Twin Towers uh, attacks. It also then led us to try to deal with the issue uh, in Afghanistan and in other settings uh, around the world. And we have done a lot, but I don't think it's a threat that will be quiescent. We have to keep our attention 
up and we have to keep working on it uh, in one way or another. And my hope is, as I remarked earlier on, that we could actually make something, something of this peace process in Afghanistan, but that will requ require the cooperation, not only of the Afghans and, uh, and the various factions in Afghanistan, but also our government and countries in the region and the Russian Federation and China, et cetera, et cetera. So we're all going to have to pull together on that. Well, um, I'd like to just tell one more story um, from your uh, your work on New Start. There was the negotiating piece and the political piece, but also a public outreach piece to try to educate the public about the um, importance of this treaty, so that they would then influence their senators to vote for the treaty. And it included outreach to peace and disarmament groups, to the clergy. Uh, and to a number of different uh, constituencies in the U.S. It's so important that there be that public understanding and public constituency to get Congress to take a positive action on a treaty that's been negotiated. And um, you've always had a very good sense of that need to reach out uh, to the public more broadly in terms of public speaking, your writing, when in government to try to engage the public in, in the discussion and uh, inform people. And I, I will never forget the day when we were on an airplane coming uh, back to the U.S., I think from Ukraine, or it could have been from Moscow, and you came up with the idea the Ukrainians were being very difficult about the idea of dismantling their nuclear weapons. You came up with the idea of sending Gloria on a PR to tour of uh, Kiev to meet with uh, members of their parliament and to be on TV and so on. So I will never forget that specific mission uh, from Rose to actually reach out to the public in Ukraine to try to gain their support for the agreements we were trying to negotiate to get rid of their nuclear weapons. So just I just want to thank you for your creativity your dedication, uh, all that you have accomplished in the arms control field, uh, in your multiple positions. Now for a, a lovely and somewhat self-deprecating book, I would say, uh, about uh, what you accomplished and your team accomplished on the New START Treaty. So thank you for this conversation. And moreover, uh, thank you for your service and your contribution. Well, thank you, Gloria. And boy, were you ever effective. You were the exact person for the job to send off to Kiev. So I thank you for, for uh, what you were able to accomplish on that mission. But thanks for this opportunity today too. We had some fun together. Definitely, definitely. Well, again, my thanks to Rose Gottemuller, uh, who is the um, distinguished lecturer at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. She's also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution She's former Deputy Secretary General of NATO, former Under Secretary of State for Arms Control and International Security in the Obama administration, the Chief Negotiator for the U.S. of the New START Treaty, and apropos of our discussion, the uh, uh, a Director at the National Security uh, Council during the uh, Clinton administration. She's also the author of the new book, Negotiating the New START Treaty, which is available at your local bookstore and online. Thank you so much to all of our viewers. Thank you for terrific questions. I'm Gloria Duffy, and now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.